Hello, and welcome to the AgriFood Safety Produce Bites podcast, where we discuss all things produce safety and dive into the rules and regulations surrounding the Food Safety Modernization Act Produce Safety Rule. My name is Erin Lazad. I'm an educator with Michigan State University Extension, and I work statewide on integrated pest management. And most of my focus is on specialty crops. Um, but I also have become very interested in wildlife management on the farm over the last uh, five years or so. My name is Phil Toko. I'm with Michigan State University Extension, and I serve statewide in on-farm food safety. So I'm, I'm curious, Erin, uh, there are a lot of critters out there. There's a lot of wildlife out there. I'm curious about which wildlife are the most economically damaging when, when good wildlife go bad, if you will. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think this is an important question. When we talk about wildlife, especially kind of maybe through a food safety lens, um, you know, we don't often think about the economic challenges of some of these um, pests, but they're, um, or what we think of as pests when they're doing damage on the farm anyway. Um, you know, but there are certain species that obviously create more economic damage and they don't necessarily correlate to the species that present the biggest food safety risk. So there's a couple of different reasons on the farm, of course, why growers might want to mitigate wildlife coming in, especially at certain times of the year, production wise. Um, I think Probably anyone listening, any farmer listening is probably shouting, deer, deer are the biggest issue economically. And I think that's been um, shown through, uh, we actually just conducted a survey last fall of producers and asked them what the most economically damaging pest was on their farm. And that was primarily in Michigan that we got responses, but we also did around the Great Lakes region get some respondents and um, over and over again by a landslide white-tailed deer were listed and um, you know one of the interesting things about the economic challenges of wildlife on the farm is there is not a lot of published research data on this issue it's kind of a big issue to get your arms around when you think about all the different cropping systems we have all the different wildlife species that can cause damage on a farm, and then kind of the unique relationship between those different species and the crops. So, you know, when we look at something like fruit, birds become a huge issue, not surprisingly to anyone who has a berry bush or a fruit tree in their backyard. Versus when we look at field crops, when we are more interested in those undulant kind of um, herd grazers like deer that tend to cause a lot of damage. There's also the issue of looking at when damage occurs throughout the year. So when we look at something like corn, early in the year when we're seeding corn, sandhill cranes are a huge issue. They come in, they'll out those little baby cotyledon plants, and they'll eat that seed um, at the bottom of the plant. Later in the season, as that crop grows, then we get into more browse by deer. Um, as the corn comes on, we see bear come in and eat um, the, and actually they have very specific preferences for types of corn that they prefer. Oh, wow. um, and so, you know, it is a very complex issue. And so, you know, I would say definitely deer is at the top. I would probably put birds second. Um, may, and birds, you know, so many species, so many different implications. If you're talking about a feedlot, mm -hmm. 
this fruit field or fruit orchard. And then I think um, rodents would probably be up there quite high as well. And when we're just thinking across the spectrum of cropping systems. Interesting. I mean, when it comes to a, when it comes from a food safety perspective, deers have are some reservoir with respect to carrying E. coli and whatnot, but birds tend by and large to be a, a big one with respect to salmonella and transferring, you know, especially like seagulls. I can, I can definitely see seagulls being an issue or, or feedlot critters moving from a feedlot into a, into a fruit and veg field could carry a lot of stuff in. Yeah. So it's interesting from an economic perspective that a lot of those carry over too. Yeah. I was, I've read some papers about, you know, a big portion of how much E. coli is carried in wildlife feces also has to do with kind of the environment. So if you're next mm-hmm. to beef or dairy area, production area or farm, then there tends to be higher E. coli levels in the animals like rodents and things that um, live in that environment. Or if you think of things like seagulls that spend time, you know, at the dump <laughs> and then come over and mm-hmm. spend time on the farm, they see these higher um, carrying capacities or carrying loads of things like E. coli, which is, of course, our poster child for um, food safety related to wildlife, um, you know, what we're most concerned right. with. So I found that really fascinating that, you know, so much of it is dependent on the surrounding environment. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So what do, what can folks do to keep some of these critters? What what are some effective animal exclusion methods that can keep these critters out? Yeah, well, I think, you know, physical barriers, that type of exclusion is definitely the gold standard. So it's hard to get better than, you know, netting a vineyard for birds or fencing um, a field uh, to keep deer out. It gets a little trickier when we start thinking about things that can climb or Mm -hmm. small things through large fences, um, you know, like rodents and things. So, you know, when you're looking at a specific pest, there are definitely um, some exclusion options that are available for some pests. Like we just talked about tall fences for white-tailed deer, netting for birds, things like that. But all of these pests really benefit more from kind of a multifaceted approach to management. So the idea that we're not just trying to exclude them with physical barriers, but maybe we're making the habitat less hospitable or attractive. Maybe Mm -hmm. we're ramping up some of those aversion techniques like air cannons or, you know, going out and patrolling the area in your truck regularly, things that are going to make a white-tailed deer want to avoid that pathway. Um, You know, with rodents, we talk a lot about um, making sure that we're keeping things mowed around the the edge Um, that exposes them to bird depredation. Um, In some instances outside the crop field or during the off season when crops aren't in, we can also use um, lethal rodenticides to help suppress populations. Cool. But things like rodents, like deer, especially rodents, they have such a fast reproductive um, ability that it's not something we can just address and walk away from. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a clog to just keep those numbers low. And I think it's also important to remember that, you know, we don't have to provide 100% control of these pests. We want to kind of make a, a reasonable effort 
to exclude them from the production area, mm -hmm. especially when the crop is on or three, three months, I think is the kind of rule of thumb mm -hmm. prior to when the crop is on. And that's just based on, you know, the half-life or the degradation rate of E. coli in the field. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think planning is really imp an important part of that. Um, budgeting for that. Everybody who has, you know, budgeted out a pitcher wire fence that's 10 or 12 feet tall lately knows that doesn't come cheaply. Sure. And even that requires maintenance. So, um, you know, we have to look at what is the cost of protecting this crop versus the value of this crop over time and make some of those hard decisions. And, um, and it's certainly also dependent on where you are in the state. So it might make sense to fence um, an orchard in an area with high deer pressure, sure. and it may not make sense um, in other locations where you maybe have lower deer pressure. So all of those things are important considerations. You're bringing up the idea that, that, um, the, that the, the time to really focus on this is right before harvest or when the crop is present really kind of resonates with me. We talk a lot about pre-harvest wildlife assessments and the fact that, that on some level, uh, you know, being being able to do a pre-harvest wildlife assessment, I mean, as much as it's not required by law, by the FSME produce safety rule, it is a, a good practice and something we encourage folks to do. And the, the, the law really specifies that, that growers need to be mindful of pests, of wildlife pests, and to do, basically to do due diligence and to take every every reasonable measure to, to prevent wildlife from entering, but we know they don't, we know they get in. We know that there are, are issues where critters still attack. So I guess um, you were talking a little bit about proximity to, to sources of contamination. Are there particular sources you need to, to be really mindful of? You know, one of them that has come up a couple times is when when you have um, cattle, which of course cattle um, are one of the primary risk kind of sources of E. coli. Um, when you have a cattle field or cattle housed adjacent to a plant production area, and there, you know, there's some kind of minimum limitations to how close that can be especially when you have a grade issue. So when those cows are above grade from your production area mm -hmm. and, and of course you could worry about if you had heavy rain or things like that, where you could get surface runoff and it could essentially carry E. coli into the production area. Um, one of the things I think is really too important to think about with that is um, using our green buffers uh, to prevent infiltration of that E. coli into the field. And we talk about green buffers as being important for a million different reasons. Um, you know, erosion probably at the top of the list, but there's been um, research that has shown 99% of, um, of E. coli is actually filtered out by a three foot wide grass bumper. So if you think about filtering capacity of just that small strip of, you know, a nice densely vegetated um, strip that, well, if you could have, you know, 40 feet of that, you would mm -hmm. essentially you know, el eliminate that risk. And so I think being smart about where we're placing 
especially livestock. If we have a neighbor who has livestock or a mixed use farm or a mixed producer farm, um, which of course, you know, cows come with crops. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just sure. nature of the beast. And so I think strategically thinking about some of those food safety concerns mm -hmm. and not just also with, do you have a woodlot where you know you have a ton of deer traffic? Well, maybe you don't want to put a really deer susceptible crop or a really enticing crop next to, you know, that woodlot. Sure. Um, you want to create a portion of the farm where you encourage wildlife and mm -hmm. then discourage on another portion. So if you have a large, large farm, you know, thinking about creating pathways through that farm that are enticing and inviting for wildlife that you do not want in, right. in the rest of the And I think that speaks to what a lot of the struggle is with this wildlife component of agriculture. And that's that, you know, of course, wildlife has an intrinsic societal value. Um, many of our ag producers are avid hunters. They enjoy wildlife. You know, there's um, kind of these conflicting um, needs and desires on the part of all of us to see, you know, wildlife flourish, but also to be able to safely harvest uh, a full crop. And so I think there are some creative solutions when we think about kind of area-wide planning to support wildlife and also prevent, you know, on-farm contamination and crop damage by wildlife. But it, you know, it takes a lot of planning and it takes, I think, being flexible and thoughtful about how we lay things out. Yeah, that actually sounds a lot like a term we talk about, a term called co-management uh, with respect to, to wildlife. The idea that, that both environmental goals and food safety goals or produce safety goals aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. It isn't an either or, but a both and. Um, I'm curious about... I'm I'm curious about something you you also talked about um, with respect to where the wildlife are most dense. When we talk to growers a little bit about um, pre-harvest wildlife assessments, we often talk to them about focusing specifically on those areas, those interface areas where you know that there's critters that have, that come in regularly, so that you know to kind of basically scout and scout for and seek out the poop, if you will. And I think that that I, I really want to kind of draw that out because I think it's it's really important for for folks to to really think when when they do wild pre-harvest wildlife assessments that they focus on those areas where there could be a problem so they know where there is a problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, and um, we have a set of wildlife damage fact sheets at MSU. They're free. They're on the IPM page, which is ipm.msu.edu. And a big part of that pre-harvest wildlife assessment, which really, I mean, when you think about <laughs> how short our season is here, mm -hmm. that pre-harvest assessment should be going on, I think, quite early. Sure. And I, I, it's nice to watch the change in patterns that you see. Particularly, I mean, we'll pick on white-tailed deer because, you know, I think everybody can identify white-tailed deer. Most of us know um, what the tracks that look like. But, you know, we'll see their um, movement patterns across the landscape change depending on, you know, do we have does with fawns in the spring? Is it rut in the fall? You know, do we have a neighbor who's got some delicious, nice, bright green alfalfa? 
uh, just sprouting this time of the year. So all change the way that animal is going to move on the farm. But one of the most basic things we need to adequately um, do that wildlife assessment is to be able to identify the species that's doing the damage, leaving the tracks, leaving the scat. And mm -hmm. so on the IPM page, we have um, this set of fact sheets that helps you identify, you know, who has been nibbling on my plants, um, whose scat is this, you know, what, what type of bird, birds can be tricky. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so just to help you identify some of those unknowns, I think most growers um, have a pretty good handle on that. Um, but if you're unsure, that's always um, a resource you can check out. And then you can also reach out to people at like DNR or Extension, and we can help identify things as well if you're just feeling a little unsure of what you're seeing. So you talked a little bit about tracks and scat. It seems like it seems to me that there's a, a different level of concern that I would have as a grower with respect to um, scat. I mean, we like I say, I, I always say follow the poop. So I mean, I'm thinking if I'm thinking about relative risk, if I see a, a one set of tracks or a couple set of tracks, that's that gets me sort of inquisitive about looking for more. But if I start to see a lot of tracks or significant uh, traffic in my field or significant crop damage to my mind, then that signals that I've got to think about not harvesting that, that, uh, crop, crop area. Um, does that sound right to you too? Yeah. I mean, as you know, Phil, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, the, I guess the regulatory language around those types of situations, it, it is a little gray, right. And it depends on how you're harvesting, um, you know, how you're aggregating that crop. Is this something you can just walk around when you see scat because there's hand harvesting? Um, you give it a 10-foot radius and say that's good. I think those are some difficult questions. Um, and I think farmers need to consider the risk, you know, to themselves and industries with these things. You know, unfortunately, um, we all know of cropping systems that have a reputation for having some food safety issues and how devastating that can be to brands that have to do recalls or things like that. And so even though it feels like a small decision in the field, each of those decisions that's made by that individual farmer can affect not just their farm, but of course, you know, the farm down the road that sells to the same, you know, commercial, you know, whatever, food manufacturer or anything. And so I think it's important to keep in mind um, not just the food safety risk, which is, of course, really important, but the potential economic risks of having a food safety issue on your farm. Um, and probably erring on the more conservative side, uh, in my mind, of what's reasonable is how I would go just because the risk is so great. If you do have E. coli contamination, um, you know, on your individual farm. So that's, it's, I think it's a really hard decision to make in the field. Um, and in fact, Phil, if you have any like insight to I'm kind of switching the roles here as I often do. And on the phone with Phil, um, I often have more questions for him than him for me. <laughs> um, you know, about how growers 
go through that process of, okay, we know we have a pile of scat in this row of cucumbers. What are we going to do about? Well, I always think of poop as king. So whenever there's, there's poop, that's something you want to avoid. Um, I think of if there's one incidence of poop, that's not a huge deal or that's something I need to be aware of and, and mindful of. But obviously if there's um, extensive amounts of fecal deposits in your field, you definitely, I would definitely consider not harvesting the area that it's around. Uh, you did mention whether or not it was hand harvested versus mechanically harvested. That makes a lot of sense too, um, particularly because a, a hand harvested product, there there is a lot of selective selection of basically not poopy produce. So you get a situation where legally the the farm worker, the harvest workers, um, must not harvest uh, visibly damaged or, or visibly contaminated uh, fruits and vegetables. So that goes for things like nibbled on product. That goes for things like pooped on product. So as as a hand harvester goes through the field, they can be very selective about what they pick. Whereas if you're mechanically harvested, you can't really do that. It's really hard to, to maneuver a large harvester around a five foot buffer zone or a 10 foot buffer zone. So that's, I mean, to my mind, that's a big challenge. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like that like pre immediate pre-harvest field assessment where maybe you're walking a field looking for signs of damage and associated scat would be even more critical for people who are in large mechanized harvesting type systems. Um, Certainly for hand harvested fields, but you kind of get that hopefully secondary look from your trained harvesters about, you know, what is your policy on the farm when they're scat? What does that mean? Are you skipping 10 plants? Are you skipping five plants? What does that look like? Um, yeah, that, that mechanized one is tough because, you know, you're the, in likelihood, you're not going to even see it to know. Yeah. The good news is that most of our crops that go for fresh market tend to be hand harvested which is really nice yeah but there are some that are not sure yeah well cool is there anything else you think growers need to know about wildlife well i think it's you know i think first of all it's important to know that everybody is struggling with questions and challenges it's not a straightforward proposition it's not like when we have an insect pest like japanese beetle that we can all agree you know we could live happily with never seeing a Japanese beetle again in Michigan. (laughs) We don't feel the same way about white-tailed deer um, in general. And so I think just recognizing the complexity of, of this, um, of these challenges, um, you know, reaching out if you have neighbors or wildlife groups or large landowners in your area and really thinking about an area-wide effort to create space for wildlife where they belong, right? I think that is, in my mind, as I delve more into this topic, I think that kind of large area-wide management of wildlife for the benefit of society in general and also the hunters as well as the farmers being able to kind of coexist in this um, region-wide management strategy is, is really the direction that we're headed, especially with these large undulants like white-tailed deer. Um, you know, thinking things through ahead of time, um, 
penciling out the cost-benefit ratio, which is something that can be tough to do when we talk about the risk of having an E. coli outbreak. Well, what, what is it worth to not have an E. coli outbreak on your farm, you know? But that has to be balanced with the value of the crop as well. And so, you know, those are complex issues that I think everyone is trying to work through. Some of it has been ongoing since, you know, man planted corn in the vicinity of a white-tailed deer. And some of it has been prompted by, you know, the food safety rules. Um, but it's going um, conversation and there are resources to help you. So, you know, you can get depredation permits, um, for relief through the Department of Natural Resources. Um, we can work with you on that if that's something you need assistance with, but we found you know, when there's damage about to occur or occurring that the DNR has been cooperative um, in most cases in issuing those permits. If you're dealing with migratory bird species, then you would be reaching out to Wildlife Services who has an office in Lansing, again, They've been very cooperative with helping um, growers address those issues on the farm, particularly related to things like sandhill cranes. Um, and so, you know, if you're, if you're having this issue and feeling frustrated, reach out. First step, reach out to Extension if you don't know who to call, and we will help get you to the right people. So, you know, this is on the radar of a lot of our wildlife management agencies, and I think they are working um, in good faith to help address this for farmers. So, you know, let us know how we can help, I guess would be the bottom line. Thanks, Erin. I really appreciate your time today. That, that really helped kind of frame it nicely and, and give a lot of folks maybe some, some information. We'll certainly make sure we have in the show notes that we've got uh, that your, your wildlife damage information and your fact sheet so that people can find that for sure. Yeah, I also have an article that's like called Do I Need a Permit? And it's about controlling wildlife on the farm because some of our, you know, unregulated species can be controlled without a permit. And then some require DNR, some require wildlife service permits. So um, we can also link that. That might be helpful as well. Cool. We can certainly do that. Links or definitions to anything referenced in this episode are provided in our show notes, which can be accessed on the website at canr.msu.edu slash agrifood underscore safety. Thank you to everyone for listening, and don't forget to tune in next month for another episode of our Produce Bites podcast.